Hello, my name is Cole. I'm the youth pastor. It is the uh, Sunday after Thanksgiving, so I get to preach, and we're in for a wild ride. Uh, who knows what could happen? Who knows? The youth pastor is preaching. Uh, I have had the luxury, the opportunity, whatever you want to call it, to be kind of functioning as the elementary director for a while, so I've been teaching in the elementary room, and uh, I want to, I'm taking a risk this morning, because I know that it's a little scary for our elementary kids to, in some ways, to be in here, but I want to show you something that blew me away. I didn't know this was going on. You might not know this was going on. I don't know, but I hope it happens. If it doesn't, that's okay. It's all right. We're just in here having fun. Um, so if you are an elementary student, if you are in kindergarten, will you, will you raise your hand for me this morning? Just raise your hand. If you are in first grade, keep your hands raised. First grade, raise your hand. Second grade, raise your hand. Third grade, fourth grade. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need your help. Every Sunday, before we start our class in the elementary room, we go through the church calendar. We start with what's, we start with the, the, of course, the, uh, the, the, the star here at the top. We start with uh, what this special holiday is. Elementary students, do you know what this is? Yell it out for me. Christmas, very good. That makes these four Sundays, the four Sundays before Christmas, what season? Advent, very good. After Christmas, after Christmas, we go into what season? What is it? Not Pentecost. Who is it? Epiphany, very good. Well done. And then we move into what season? No? Lent. That is exactly right. We move into the season of Lent. And then we celebrate a special holiday called what? Easter. Easter. Then we move into what season? Okay, adults. They said Easter tide. Not the season of Easter. They know the, they know the word Easter tide. I mean, come on. <laughs> then, then they get to this holiday. What is this holiday? Pentecost. Let's go. And then... And then, and then, wait, we get to this, this season. What is this season? Ordinary time. And then we have these special four weeks in the middle of ordinary time. They're called what? The season of create. We celebrate creation. Y'all, give your elementary students a round of applause. Unbelievable. They know a different organizing of time. They know a different calendar than, than we do. And we're, we're, we're catching up to them. It's incredible. That means this Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. We are beginning the journey towards Easter and Pentecost over again. And it is not just, by the way, I have to do this. You guys, if you want to take this away, that way they, these people can see. That'd be great. It's a good time to do that. Uh, this is not just a Sunday where... Uh, we begin the annual cycle back around again. But this is a Sunday where we begin what is also a three-year cycle. So the church calendar is an annual cycle. It also has year A, B, and C. This Sunday is Sunday one of one. It is the beginning of the annual cycle and the beginning of the three-year cycle. 
So, this begs the question, where does the church calendar and those who assembled this calendar, this cycle of scriptures that we read each Sunday, where does this begin? Where does it start? Like one of one. Let's read it. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Here's how it begins. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in days to come the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I love this. I find it so weird. I find it intriguing that the assemblers of the church calendar chose to put this text, the, the, the liturgy of a year in a three-year cycle, they chose this one as the beginning. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. A few notes. Here, a few notes. By placing verse 3, right, by placing verse 3 at the beginning of all of the cycles, we get the sense that the church calendar, that the, that, that the, the people who assemble this, they are, they are assuming this is a kind of curriculum. It teaches us something. And as we, get, as we begin this journey, again... We can therefore safely assume that we are on a journey to learn the way of the Lord. This is where things get interesting. Verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So there's something about this curriculum that teaches God's way, and there is something odd about the nature and thrust of God's way. It doesn't seem to be about getting to heaven, interestingly. It doesn't seem about God or about purity, like in and of itself. Oddly, God's way seems to have something to do, as that verse showed us, with relationships, conflict, and peacemaking. So let me say it like this. On this one-of-one Sundays, at the beginning of the church calendar's annual and three-year cycle, we're going to be discussing conflict. So let's start where we need to start. This section of Scripture is from the book of Isaiah. And most scholars believe that Isaiah is a collection of teachings and writings that was compiled by the Jewish people after they returned as a people from Babylon. The idea, the idea was to compile not just a history of the people of God, but an artifact that could capture and communicate a particular kind of imagination and wisdom that was birthed through the people of God while in exile. 
In other words, much like the church calendar, the book of Isaiah is a kind of process that teaches an imagination for what it means to be the people of God in the world. This is how the people of God see the world. This is how the people of God see God. And this is how the people of God see ourselves, each other, and creation. So, let's discuss, real quick, stay with me, the historical context of Isaiah that this was compiled in, because it's going to be really important. In order to understand the text, we need to, to discuss the Old Testament theme of exile. Exile is an experience that is constitutive Thank you. I used a good word there. That is constitutive of what it means to be the people of God. You can't separate our faith from the experience of exile. Whether it's Adam and Eve being exiled from Eden, right at the beginning of the Bible, or Mary and Joseph being exiled to Egypt, the theme of exile is constant and everywhere in the Old and New Testament. To be the people of God is to be a people who not only know what exile means, but can feel what exile means by way of their historical record. In other words, what do you feel separated from right now? Israelite history says that the primordial people of God leave Egypt in dramatic fashion. Isaiah says that God moved God's arm and pulled God's people out from bondage in Egypt. God brings them into the wilderness to learn how to be in relationship with God's self, learn how to be in relationship with each other, learn how to be in relationship with creation. And throughout the generations, the Israelite people build themselves up, up to be a nation. They make promises to God and to each other, and God makes promises to them. And they become a nation, right, a nation with a palace, a king, a law, a temple, a people in a land with a God, a king, an identity, borders, a military, all the stuff, right? However, Israel does not keep the promises they made to God and each other. In the name of national security and economic growth, they abuse the poor, exploit the vulnerable, and they covet the financial and military security that the surrounding nations seem to have. And this practice of sin over the centuries eventually becomes ingrained and systematized. It becomes built into the systems and institutions of Israel. And God warns warns them of this direction as a nation. The way of war and exploitation leads them, eventually it leads them to disaster, to genocide, and violence. And God sends them prophet after prophet, warning them, warning the kings, warning the people. God is slamming the panic button. Watch out, watch out, don't do this, don't do this. And Israel is not interested. So Babylon, a neighboring kingdom, eventually ransacks Israel. For reasons we can discuss later, the, the, the TikTok of how all that worked, they come in and they just ransack Israel. Israel is no match for the kingdom of Babylon. In spite of all of Israel's successes and economic growth, Babylon had advanced leaps and bounds beyond what Israel could ever compete with. All of Israel's efforts at growth and security were nothing, nothing compared to what Babylon had accomplished. Babylon perfected the chariot. 
Babylon perfected the process of wheel, making wheels and sailboats. Babylon, it's a debate, but I'm just going to say it. Babylon invented urbanization. With that came a flurry of culture, ideas, and entertainment. Babylon invented, invented propaganda for the cultivation of a national identity. Babylon invented the plow, or at least perfected it. There's, again, it's a long time ago, there's debates. Sp- this, this, this sped up the process of agriculture tenfold. Food became so plentiful in Babylon, and, it's, and it had this ability to feed its citizens. Jobs, work, and, and food, it was plentiful all throughout the, the, area of, the region of Babylon. Babylon created centers of mathematical study. And all of this, all of this was in support of Babylon's war machine and economic security. So Babylon rolls in, destroys Israel, and then enacts a social strategy that was one of the first of its kind. It's fascinating. Babylon's idea was to take the elite children and youth of the society and abduct them. They, they took a lot of other people, but I want to focus on this aspect of it. They took the elite children and youth of the society and abducted them from their land and brought them back to Babylon. Let everyone else fend for themselves, but Babylon wanted the best of the best. This was not the invention. This was not the novel domestic strategy that, Babylon, that made Babylon famous. Amy Chua in her book Day of Empire reminds us that other countries did this as well. What was new about Babylon was that they didn't take the elite and make them slaves. Hear me closely. They didn't take the elite and make them slaves. They didn't exactly force them to work for Babylon by way of the whip. They abducted these children and they put them through social programming to introduce them to the wonders and beauty and access of Babylonian culture. They would teach them the way of Babylon. And they realized that becoming, they realized, hear me closely, that by becoming a multicultural society in service of Babylon, in service of the war machine, they can expand their thinking, their ideas, and economic engine to be vastly superior to other kingdoms. And there was wisdom found in these captive people. Let's include them into our culture and we could take advantage of their cultural perspective for our ends. Israel was not the only nation Babylon did this to. This was actually a political invention unique to Babylon. They were one of the first kingdoms to realize that you can expand your borders, conquer other nations, bring the captured people into Babylon, and control them without violent conflict. I mean, they would definitely do that. But you didn't have to violently control these captives at first. There was a way of conquering people groups that didn't immediately result in rebellion and more violence. In fact, there was a way of conquering countries where they sometimes would choose to come under the wing of Babylon and not leave. Their method of population control was equally as sinister as it was brilliant. And Babylon showed the world how to be what we call an empire. To take spirituality, relationships, free time, education, and resources, detach it from a land, 
and bend it to all be in service of the growth and expansion of the state and the economy. And Amy Chua, in her book, Day of Empire, says that Babylon figured out you could ransack surrounding nations, exploit their resources, and uproot their people from their land, and they won't rebel. Hear me. As long as you offer their children jobs, food, safety, entertainment, and access. Give them Babylonian hope, joy, and a future, and they will become like you. What choice do they have? And throughout the hundreds of years that Israel was taken captive in Babylon, you not only have conflict between Babylon and Israel, the people of Israel who are in Babylon, conflict like how do we stay faithful to God amidst massive social pressure, right? The conflict had moved into their homes. Babylon's way was always enticing to the children. Read the book of Daniel and you will see a story of a young Jewish boy, Daniel, who was in constant conflict over how much he was going to give to Babylon. He worked for Babylon. He helped Babylon. But he was always in conflict about his ethical and spiritual loyalties. The story, that story doesn't come out of a vacuum. It's not a nice story about a child. It's a story that found ears, hearers, that knew exactly what kind of pressures Daniel was under. And I submit to you that this is exile. Being uprooted from your home, ripped out of the way things were, your past marginalized, your future uncertain, and your present is in constant conflict. While this happened to Israel, the reason the story of the exile has been told for thousands of years is because the story of exile still happens, right? In varying degrees, in varying contexts, people know what it is like to live in constant conflict with a past that only brings us pain and a future that barely gives hope. One of my former students is a Mexican-American male who played soccer, who loves, loves soccer. We went to lunch the other day to catch up, and we started talking about the World Cup. Anyone watching the World Cup? Good. I mean, really? Who? Wait, raise your hand if you're not. Raise your hand if you're not watching the World Cup. Lord be with them. <laughs> One of the things that struck me about this year's World Cup, if you've noticed it, if you paid attention, is how many dual nationals there are. Players who were born in one country and are playing for another country. The mass global immigration of the past few decades is beginning to show up in our athletic competitions, like the World Cup. Teams like Italy have players born in Africa who identify as Italian. Teams like Argentina have a player named Alexis McAllister, born in Scotland. Canada has a player by the name of Alfonso Davies, who is amazing, and he was born in Ghana uh, and grew up in a Ghanaian refugee camp in Canada. And so I was sitting there to my former student, and I, and I, was just, I just asked him, I said, if you were good enough to play international soccer in Mexico came to you and asked you to play for Mexico and the Uni- on the same day in the United States came in and asked you to play for them, which would you choose? I don't know why I asked him. I just was curious. Would you play soccer for Mexico or would you play for the United States? Because by FIFA law, you could do both. And he looked at me 
and he knew what I was asking. He said, you mean which do I feel, American or Mexican? I said, well, do you feel American? What does, I mean, genuinely, we, we're friends. I was like, what does that feel like? He goes, well, when I, went, when I went to Mexico to visit my family, they all think I'm American. To feel American to him, he said, feels like privilege. Like jobs and money and a driver's license, which I'm grateful for, he said. Well, he said he's grateful for. I said, when you feel Mexican, what does it feel like? He didn't hesitate. He said, it's the food. The food and the music. He said, it feels like home. It feels like home. He then went into a 20 to 30 minute dialogue on the problems with both cultures and how each culture has strengths and they don't realize it and they have definite weaknesses and, and they don't, they're avoiding them. And he was just sitting there dissecting each culture. And in some way, I, he was sitting there examining the conflict within him how these two cultures fit together and what each says about the other inside of him. And I'm sure he, he's imagining, I'm sure he was imagining all the times he disappointed his family by pe- being a little too American. And all the times he, he gave up or was walled off from relational, educational, and economic opportunities for being too Mexican. And I'm not, sa- I'm not saying, hear me, I'm not saying, as a white straight dude right here, <laughs> who was a Christian, is the same as being a kid from an immigrant family trying to make their way in a new country. I'm not saying that. But the exile in me that I feel recognizes the obvious exile in my students' experience of his two cultures. Trying to be someone of virtue and fidelity while living in a culture, in a society that has systematized greed and corruption is alienating. And one more. Trying to be someone of virtue and fidelity when you are inescapably bound up in that very system of greed and corruption is humiliating. I'm the very thing I'm trying not to be. Can I get an amen? So what do we do with this conflict? What do we do? For the Gen Xers in the room, those of you, the Gen Xers in the room, the first temptation I think for you is, is probably cynicism. This is, my, this is my observations. Cynicism. Everything is horrible. Everyone is horrible. Who cares? It all sucks. Do what you want. Nothing matters. I feel stupid and contagious. Here we are now. Entertain us. Thank you. I worked on that one. Uh, for the millennials and Gen Z in the room, hello, I'm one of you. Uh, your temptation, our temptation, seems to be escape. We are doomed. The planet is burning. Let's get high and run away. I'm just being honest. This is what it seems to be. And this is not the message of Isaiah. This is not the example of the people of God in Babylon. Unlike us, they didn't have the wealth to be cynical. They, like my students didn't have the luxury of escaping and running away. They were forced to deal with the questions of how are we going to survive if I can't eliminate my enemy? How am I going to get up in the morning if I can't resolve this conflict in me? And this social position tapped them into a hidden path. Babylon beat Israel's swords into plowshares for them. 
And this experience of losing your weapons gave the Israelite people a fresh perspective. It gave them this insight into what God was doing in the world. That they simply could not see with a weapon in their hand. They lived in Babylon. They sought the welfare of their city, but they never forgot their loyalties and the future of what God was doing in the world. Babylon, yes, had them under the whip, but it was not the end. As a people, they carried with them, they did the work to carry with them the future of God, and so they worked and they waited. Verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. This, at the beginning, Sunday one of one, this is the future of God. Throw that back up there for me. Future of God. And we are in America in the year 2022. And I am the youth pastor at Redemption Church. And I have a responsibility to you. I give this part of the sermon once a year in some form just to remind you of our responsibilities to the youngest people amongst us. I left them in the room just to kind of have them here with you, bumping into you as they're sitting there. This text and this Advent season means that I have to talk about a specific conflict in us. This deep conflict in us that I know you feel and I'm sure you don't have a lot of answers for. And this is... This is how you know exile is happening. You don't have a lot of answers for this conflict. The easiest way to see this conflict is to talk about how it shows up in our children. My job is to put my finger on this conflict and then to bring us into the season of Advent. You with me? I hang out with your teenagers. They talk to me. I have no power over them, so they often tell me some unfiltered stuff about their life. They talk about their hopes, their dreams, but often and mostly their anxieties. When they talk about their life, this is is often how it goes. In other words, this is the script they give me. This is their assumption about how life goes here in this country in this time. Number one, I need to make money. (laughs) Healthcare, the cost of housing, vacations, how dare they? want to take vacations they they went to make they they want to make money they know they know money doesn't make give them happiness but they seem to believe that money will take away their struggles there's a difference i need to two i need to get good grades to get into good schools so i can get a good job to make money the better the grades the better the school the more money right i need to develop some passions number three or hobbies The better I'm at at a hobby or skill, the more scholarship money I might get, and this might offset my ability to make good grades and thus get a good job and get money. I need to build relationships. Friendships are important for happiness. This this, This is where they're at. Friendships are important for happiness. They also provide popularity that helps me network and build my social credibility. And finally, our students care about this. Finally, spirituality is important. Spirituality and church... They will say, help them with their mental health and to have a positive outlook on life. And this helps them make friends and, and, and enjoy their passions and so on and so on up, the, up the, the, the tree here. 
And I'm here to tell you that this is a dominant script that our children are living with. It's in them. It dominates their behavior and their thought world. They might not say it. They might not even be aware of it. But overall, this is the world they live in. They learn this script from you and me and media and music and TV and school. And well, the script is everywhere. It is metaphysical. It's like religious. And this is also not your fault. But it is also very much our fault. Like, like Babylon, this is the American capitalist economy forming our children and us into faithful, obedient citizens. Do you want health care? Work. And the script lives in all of us. And before you had children, I bet if I sat down with you, you would say, you don't want your kid to live like this. And you don't want them to think that this is what makes a happy and meaningful life. However, this is the script they picked up from somewhere. It is what they learned from us. And it is also making them and us miserable and clinically anxious. The conflict is that deep down, we know another way. The script, this script is not the future of God. This is a dying empire. In fact, the future of God is like this. Spirituality is essential. How you go about making meaning of God, yourself, others, and the world is the most important work you can do as a human being. Two, relationships are equally as important. You cannot make meaning of God, yourself, others, and the world without relationships. Spirituality is fundamentally relational. It's not an individual exercise. Your passions and hobbies are life-giving exercises that help develop deep friendships. Your education is formalized training where you get the privilege of learning and accessing the deep wells of human thought so that you can learn the arguments and have your part to play in the ongoing fight of what it means to be alive. Your education is in service of your passions and hobbies. You bring your formal training into what you love to do. By the way, this is why so many of the adults aren't actually using their degrees. Sorry, okay. Your money... Your money is in service to these other pursuits. In other words, if spirituality is relationality and spirituality is at, the, is at the core of your script, your money is not for you. This is the script of the people of God, and this is an alternative understanding of our life together. Let me be clear I'm not saying capitalism is evil, I'm saying we have no religious devotion to it. And despite its efforts to make us obedient, practicing devotees. One of these scripts, one of these scripts creates mass anxiety in hopes of bludgeoning you into participation. You want to pay for college? Find a soccer team and devote thousands of dollars and thousands of hours to it. The other draws you into itself by way of participation, adventure, and intrigue. In one of these scripts, all of your weapons become tools. Everything is in service of relationship and spirituality. That would be the one over here. 
Yes, that'd be the one over here. One of these scripts requires you to turn every tool imaginable into a weapon to compete and win that promotion. One of these scripts is dying. And one of these scripts is the future of God breaking into the present. Both of these scripts live inside us, even though they come from different places. And both of these scripts are in conflict with each other, and we can't seem to ever get them out. So what do we do? How do we resolve this conflict? How do we raise our children? In the spirit of Advent, and following in the footsteps of the Israelites in Babylon, we must first say we have no place to run. We are stuck in this conflict. And we wait and we work. Our focus is not resolving the conflict. Our focus is learning and recognizing them both. Our, our religious position, hear me closely, our religious position gives us a unique ability to see and critique what our economy is doing to us and our children. We don't have any religious devotion to it. So we wait for the empire to wake up, to see what it has done and continues to do to the world, to realize that all of its weapons can be transformed into tools of human flourishing. We wait for America to confess and to repent of its sins. There's some old school stuff for you. And we also work. We work with great patience. In our homes and in our church and in public spaces, we continue to do the work of carrying the future of God, the future of God, with us. We work to help this world imagine an alternative way of living and working, an alternative calendar. This starts here. An imagination for an alternative way of being together for the good of the neighborhood. So may we come to live by a different script. And may the forces that drive us into exile from God's future be brought down to the earth. Amen? Let's pray. God, to be human means we have great conflict in us. And the life that you call us to is often incompatible with everyday realities of living and working. And we feel stuck. Everything we do is built on the backs of exploited workers or an unjust system of oppression, and we confess the exhaustion, the cynicism, the escapism. We confess that we are tired. God, give us hope in this season of consumption. Give us eyes to see your future. Give us perseverance to wait, to work. Give us friends to help us remember where our feet are planted. Give us friends to help us remember where our home is and where we draw life from despite the pressures. Amen. going to receive communion together right now. And if you don't know, the way we do that around here, you probably know, but you'll be released row by row. You just come forward and the servers will say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. 
you can respond with amen or I will remember. And of course, uh, all are welcome at this table. So if you call in the name of Christ, uh, we, we want you to participate in this. We're going to read from 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul told the church, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. Lord, may it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. As we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come live inside us and make us new from the inside out and send us into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see that you are good so that all will know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you come? Amen.